Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Joe and his men discovered the remains of Bill Bannister in the woods. Soon thereafter, Joe found out about the lies Bill told the town gossip about Joe interfering with Bill trying to shoot Greg Vivian. Now, with Bill's death, those very lies could cost Joe his position as sheriff of Grover's Notch. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Joe turned and headed up the slate walk to Sally Bannister's house. Although the windows of the two-story brick colonial were dark, he was pretty sure that she was home. Her red Volkswagen was parked in the driveway. Doug had told him about seeing Sally's Volkswagen at the Tamarack Motel, about his suspicion that she was the mystery woman who had entered cabin four. Of course, there was no way of knowing for certain that it was Sally. She could have loaned her car to a friend. She had lots of friends. Although eventually he would have to ask her about her whereabouts earlier this evening, he knew that now was not the time. He didn't think that she was going to handle the news about Bill's murder well. Whatever reason she might have had for meeting Vivian, if indeed it had been her that Doug had seen, he doubted that it had anything to do with an intimate relationship. From what he had seen over the last few years, Sally seemed to be head over heels in love with Bill. He wasn't sure what he was going to say or how he was going to say it. He was certain of only one thing. This wasn't going to be easy. Joe rang the bell several times before he noticed that a light in one of the upstairs bedrooms had switched on. It was several minutes before the foyer light came on, and he saw her soft outline through the curtained glass in the door. She pulled the curtain aside and stared out at him. Sally, I need to talk to you. A look of concern and confusion clouded her face. She stared at him for several more seconds, as if she were trying to read his mind, but more than likely, it was the look on his face that she was trying to decipher. Suddenly, it seemed as if she knew why he was there. Her hand moved to the door latch. There was a click, and she pulled the door slowly open. She nodded for him to enter. He knew her reaction would change once he'd told her about Bill. He'd seen it time and again in similar circumstances when he was the one who had to deliver the news, the fixed eyes looking into his to see if somehow he could be mistaken, the open mouth, sudden loss for words. No matter how young or how old, before his eyes, 
you would see them age a little. It was as if a small part of their spirit had left when they were struck by the realization that the person who was a part of their life had died. It's about Bill, isn't it? Yes, Joe replied, his voice tinged with a note of concern. Sally, can I shut the door? She stared at him but didn't respond. He took a deep breath and looked away, breaking eye contact with her as he closed the door behind him. When he turned back around, her eyes were wide, like a spooked horse about to bolt. Her mouth was open. She slowly began moving away from him, shaking her head from side to side, backing up into the darkened room behind her. He stepped forward. Sally, I'm afraid I have some bad news about Bill. No, a croak of a voice said somewhere in the darkness. I hate you. He held his breath for several moments before saying, He's dead, Sally. We just found him. No, her voice screamed from the darkness. Damn you, I hate you. I'm going to call. No, she screamed again, her voice rising shrilly. All he could do was stand there and listen and wait. It was like waiting for a drowning man to go down for the third time before you could rescue him. Then he heard her low sobs. He stepped further into the dark room, felt for a lamp. Finding it, he turned it on. She stared at him from where she sat, curled into a corner of the overstuffed wing chair, her eyes red and beginning to swell. She said in a harsh, deliberate whisper, I hate you. Bill should have been sheriff, not you. You shouldn't have won this election. My Aunt Beatrice told him that the next election she would back him and he would be sheriff. What? Joe asked, stunned by what Sally had just told him. Joe didn't say anything more. He just stared at her. He hadn't realized that Bill had been so ambitious. It was all beginning to make sense now, why Bill had told Lyle the lie that he had told him. Bill was waiting for something like Judith Dalton's murder to capitalize on. With Beatrice Merriweather's backing, Bill would portray himself as the thwarted hero and Joe as the inept stooge who let a child killer slip through his fingers. Sally, I'm going to call your mother now. I'll stay with you until she gets here. The sound of the tea kettle almost drowned out the persistent knock at the door. Anne turned off the kettle and glanced at the clock on the wall above the counter before she approached the door. Who is it? she asked cautiously. It's Joe. Anne took several deep breaths trying to collect her thoughts before she unlocked and opened the kitchen door. Joe stepped into the brightly lit kitchen. His face was filled with puzzlement and concern. I was on my way home when I saw your house. Joe, you've seen my house dozens of times, Anne replied. She shut the door and turned to face him. He had a bewildered look on his ruggedly handsome face. He glanced at his watch. It's almost 4 a.m. and your house is lit up like a Christmas tree. I just thought something might be wrong. Anne looked down sheepishly. She suddenly realized that she wasn't wearing her slippers or her robe. I had a bad dream. I'm ashamed to admit it, but turning on the lights helps me cope when I've had a nightmare, Anne said and looked up at him. Is that all it was? Joe asked, his dark brown eyes staring into hers. Anne smiled and nodded. She could see his face visibly relax. Do you want to talk about it? Anne rubbed her arms, took a deep breath, and let it out slowly. Honestly, well, no, I, I can't remember most of it anyway. 
but thank you for asking. Anne turned and looked at the kettle and turned back to face Joe. I was making myself a cup of tea. The water's hot. Would you like some or maybe a cup of coffee? I have some instant. Coffee would be fine, thanks. Why don't you have a seat? I'm just going to go put on my robe and slippers. Do you have to? I think you look just fine without them. Anne smiled. That may be, but I'll feel more comfortable with them on. His eyes followed Anne as she moved away from him. She was one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen. Her large, striking green eyes, her full lips, and her high cheekbones were accented by her flawless complexion. Her beautiful oval face was softly framed by short, dark, curly hair. He watched as the silky material of the burgundy nightgown moved seductively to the rhythm of her body. He secretly wished he could comfort her after her nightmare. He longed to hold her and feel her soft skin beneath the silky material. He wanted to hold her naked next to him and smell the sweet scent of her warm, perfumed body. He wanted to let the horror of the last few hours slip away into the abyss as he made soft, passionate love to her. When Laura had first introduced him to Anne, there was something about her that he just couldn't put into words that had attracted him to her. Although there had been other women in his life, Anne was the only one he had ever considered marrying. If only she'd let down that guard of hers and allow him in, perhaps things would start to happen. He felt frustrated. They had been seeing each other for a few months, and he could count on one hand and part of the other the number of times they had kissed and held each other close. She had been honest from the beginning. She had told him that it took her a while to really commit to a relationship. She said she needed to have time to really get to know a person. The death of her mother didn't help matters any. Although she didn't talk about it, he felt she'd taken her mother's death very hard. He sat down in the chair that faced the dining room so that he could watch her return. A few minutes later, he heard the soft pad of her slippers coming down the steps. When she entered the kitchen, she was wearing a long, silky, matching burgundy robe, sashed loosely at the waist. His eyes moved slowly down her body, drinking every bit of her in, imagining what it would be like to hold her close. Then his eyes glanced down at her feet, peeking out from beneath the burgundy satin robe, were two orange beaks and two sets of black eyes. She was wearing plush black and white penguin slippers. He smiled. You like them? Anne said, tilting one foot on its heel and waving it from side to side. The latest high fashion from Paris? Joe asked with a laugh. She smiled at his question. I like to think that it's on the cutting edge of fashion. It's from Laura's boutique. Even in the black and white penguin slippers, she moved gracefully as she crossed the room to the counter to fix the coffee and tea. She came back and handed him his cup and saucer. Why don't we go into the living room where we'll be more comfortable? Joe sat down on the couch and Anne sat down in a large overstuffed chair across from him. It's probably none of my business, but why are you out so late? He took a sip of coffee. It's good. It's hard to believe it's instant, he said, placing his cup and saucer on the coffee table. Thank you, but you haven't answered my question. Joe looked at her. He hadn't wanted to spoil the mood by telling her about Bill. But in a few hours, when everyone in Grover's Notch found out about Bill's death, she would wonder why he'd kept it from her. I just came from Sally's, he said hesitantly. What is it, Joe? 
What's happened? It's Bill, isn't it? The cup she was holding began rattling against the saucer. Joe leaned forward, carefully taking them out of her hands and placed them on the coffee table. Anne looked at him, her eyes wide and her mouth slightly open. It was the second time tonight he'd seen that look. He knew that as people found out about Bill, that same look would be repeated hundreds if not thousands of times. After the shock had passed, the gossip and opinions about how it had happened and who was at fault would start. They would all be looking at him for an answer. The only one he could give them was the one they already knew, Greg Vivian. Their next question would be why he hadn't been able to catch Vivian before he killed again. That's when Lyle Campbell would start spreading Bill's lie. He knew at that point his job would become more difficult. Bill's dead, isn't he? Oh my God, poor Bill. Joe stared into Anne's green eyes, trying to fathom how she'd figured it out. How had she done it? In an attempt to cover his own surprise, Joe picked up his coffee cup, mumbling a barely audible, sarcastic comment under his breath. Yeah, poor Bill. Anne's green eyes looked at him with surprise. What? What did you say? Joe didn't answer. He lifted his coffee cup to his lips and took a sip and put the cup and saucer back on the coffee table. Could I ask how Bill died? Anne asked. Joe slumped back against the couch and ran one hand through his dark hair. He was killed the same way the Dalton girl was. His words were tinged with anger and frustration. He sat there motionless, staring at the ceiling, lost in his own thoughts, oblivious to Anne's presence. Had he been fooling himself all this time, thinking that being the sheriff of a small town could be any different from law enforcement in the city? Maybe he should have retired from law enforcement altogether, moved to Florida, and opened up a bar. Maybe he should never have come back to Grover's Notch. Joe? Joe lowered his head, his eyes tired, his face etched with fatigue, and looked across at Anne, and he realized that he would never have met her if he hadn't come back. You're exhausted. Why don't you stretch out and get some sleep? Joe pursed his lips before he replied, I don't think so, Anne. People in this town like to talk, and I don't want to give them any ammunition. We'll know that what they say is not so. That's all that matters. I wish that were so, Anne, but I know that it's not. I don't want people saying things about us that are not true. I don't want them talking about us behind our backs, spreading rumors. We don't need that. Anne picked up her cup of tea and looked down into its black contents. She said softly, You and I have something special between us something that no one can destroy with their petty gossip. I guess what I'm trying to say is, Anne hesitated. She heard his heavy breathing and glanced up. Joe, she whispered. His head was tilted back and to one side. One hand rested on his leg, the other on the cushion of the couch. She smiled and placing her cup of tea on the coffee table, she stood up and looked down at him. He looked like a little boy who'd had a long, hard day and protesting had lost his battle with sleep. Moving quietly to the end of the couch, she retrieved her mother's afghan and carefully laid it over him. She leaned down and kissed him softly on the lips, lingering a moment to listen to his rhythmic breathing. Maybe it was just as well that he had fallen asleep and not heard what she was about to say. Things happened for a reason. Just wasn't time yet. 
She walked across the room to the window that looked out onto the garden. The shade was down. She slowly raised it and peered at the cracked pane of the storm window. She looked past the fractured glass and into the garden. Her mother had always tended it with love and care. It had been Anne's special place. She would read for hours there during the day and at night would take a blanket and lay it out on the neatly clipped grass and stare up at the stars. Sometimes she would fall asleep. She had always felt safe and warm there, but lately, though not all the time, she sensed some menacing presence roaming around the garden, threatening to harm her. And tonight she felt that that figure that she had seen standing in the darkness was waiting to catch her off guard. She looked at the leaves scattered across the ground. The garden was still. The fear that had gripped her when she had awakened from her nightmare was gone with the gusty wind, and the figure she had seen just beyond the garden fence was gone as well. She folded her arms beneath her breasts and turned and looked at Joe. She felt safe with him here. She had almost found the courage to tell him that she loved him, but she wasn't sure she would find the courage to tell him about her gift that sometimes took the form of nightmarish dreams. She was afraid that he wouldn't understand how her gift affected her life and in turn would affect his. She felt that love wasn't unconditional. She took a deep breath, still staring through the window at the garden and the dark shadows of the night that lingered there. Her mother's words came back to her. Remember, be careful who you trust, and whatever your decisions are, know that your father and I will always love you. She walked over to the couch and sat down tentatively beside Joe. Maybe it was a blessing that he was asleep when she so clumsily tried to express her feelings. She didn't know why it was so hard for her to tell Joe she loved him. She gently leaned her head on his shoulder and drifted off to sleep. Anne awoke to find herself snuggled close to Joe, her head resting on his shoulder, a persistent knock coming from the kitchen door. She rose carefully, trying her best not to wake him. Who could that be at this hour? Anne asked herself as she hastily rearranged her disheveled nightclothes and walked to the kitchen door. The knock came again. Who is it? she asked. It's Ronnie Boucher, Miss Newton. She opened the door. Hello, Miss Newton. Uh, sorry to bother you, but I have to speak with the sheriff. It's important, Ronnie said. Good morning, Ronnie, Anne said, glancing first at the deputy and then hesitantly toward the living room. Not wanting to wake Joe, but giving in to Ronnie's demand, she said, wait here and I'll get him. I'll be there in a minute, Joe's voice said from the other room. A moment later, he came into the kitchen, straightening his shirt and pants. Anne saw Ronnie's face turn red. Ronnie glanced at her. What is it, Ronnie? Joe asked. Oh, sorry, Sheriff. Could I speak to you for a moment? Ronnie, come in, Anne said, motioning for him to step inside so she could close the door against the frigid air. Thank you, Miss Newton, Ronnie said, removing his Stetson as he stepped into the kitchen. He turned to Joe. Sheriff, I have to speak with you alone. I have something to do in the other room. I'll leave you two to talk, Anne said. And now, a preview of our next episode. With the number of deaths in town mounting and the number one suspect still on the loose, Joe is called before the town's board of selectmen to explain himself. In particular, 
Why hasn't he brought in the state police to aid in the investigation? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.